Okay, in our study, the, uh, for the last several weeks, we've been uh, studying on the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we noted that the reason they're referred to as the Synoptic Gospels is because of the similarities between them. And when we look carefully at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as compared to John, we find that, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke cover the same parts of the ministry of Jesus in detail, and then John's kind of over by itself. If you read it very carefully, what you find happens is that uh, most of Jesus' ministry was in Galilee. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke reveal that part of his ministry that's in Galilee and the miracles and the events that happened. John spends his time almost entirely with the part of the ministry of Jesus that was in and around Jerusalem, which really was the smallest part. And as you follow John, each time you'll have Jesus traveling to Jerusalem for a particular feast, and then there would be several chapters that revolve around that particular feast of Passover. And so John revolves around these Passover feasts that Jesus travels to, along with all devout Jews at Jerusalem, and then Matthew, Mark, and Luke concentrate on the Galilean ministry, which was really most of the time. Well, then the question comes to mind, why did Jesus spend so much time in Galilee, which is where Matthew, Mark, and Luke put their emphasis, and John over here, why did he spend so much time in Galilee? I mean, you would expect if he's the Messiah, he, he's come to announce himself to Israel, that he would actually go to Jerusalem. That would be the place to go, where in the, the big city where the devout Jews and all are. But yet, if you read John very carefully, you find out that time and again, that every time he went into Jerusalem, there was problems, and they wanted to kill him. And so he didn't stay there simply because they would have taken his life. And so he goes into Galilee. Now, Jesus was brought up in Nazareth. And another interesting thing is that although Nazareth was his hometown, they didn't want to listen to him in Nazareth. In fact, it's at Nazareth where he made the statement that a prophet is without honor in his hometown. And so what he actually did in that three-and-a-half-year ministry is he spent most of his time in that part of Israel that was most receptive to his teaching. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke center around that particular area. All indication is, in the writing, that uh, Luke and Matthew were familiar with Mark when they wrote their documents. The, the evidence seems to indicate, at least it's, as uh, far as my mind, I'm convinced that Mark was written first, and that Matthew and Luke each had access to, to Mark, and were familiar with it at the time that they wrote. But at the same time that they write, and you can see from looking at the various passages, that uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are in agreement any number of times on the same event. And then we have times when Matthew and Mark record something, or Luke and Mark record something. But you have very, very few occasions where Matthew and Luke are in agreement on something, or cover something, that is not in Mark. Okay? So, the, as we look at the Gospels, it seems to be that Mark wrote first, Luke and Matthew write later, they have access to Mark plus other documents. Now, Mark, as he put his material together, in fact, what we're going to notice is how the material is, is put together. As he put his material together, obviously, all of this information circulated orally in the early church. They, they started preaching the gospel, and there was a period of years when the gospel was preached for the apostles, 
and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had not been written. All right, as you look at Mark, you can see that it's, it's, not, a, it's not a real smooth reading thing, but you just go from this subject to this subject to this subject, and it's bang, bang, bang. And so you have, and, and you can actually see that you've got a bunch of little individual happenings, whether it's a parable or a teaching or a miracle, and he's simply taken and put them, has put them together. Okay? Now, the evidence is that, that these individual miracles and these individual parables and these individual teachings and all circulated in the church before the writers actually sat down and, and brought them together. Now, when you study the Gospels, you're going to run into terms such as form criticism, source criticism, and then redaction criticism. Now, source criticism involves the scholar looking at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and trying to determine the sources where they got their information. Like, what part of Matthew is Matthew's eyewitness account? What part did he get from Mark? as far as actual assimilating the material, what part did he get from another document or still another document? And the same thing with Luke. Source criticism involves, uh, did Luke have Mark before him? If so, how much of it did he take out? Did he have Matthew before him? And then, what other documents did he have, and how did he use those particular documents? That's source criticism. All right, now, form criticism involves taking the sources and then trying to determine the actual uh, way that that source was initially stated by Jesus. Like we're going to look at some examples tonight where one writer has Jesus covering an event and the other writer has him and yet they say, they've got different words coming out of the mouth of Jesus. Well then the question is, what is the actual message? What are the actual words that he used? Which one has performed an interpretation on the words for his audience. All right, that's called uh, form criticism. Now, redaction <coughs> criticism means that you look at the material, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you have nailed down the sources, and you've looked at the form within the sources. Now, the question becomes, what did Luke, where does Luke's individuality show in the way that he handled the sources? And where does Mark's individuality show? And where does Matthew and where does John show their individuality? So redaction is, here is the man with all the sources. How does he handle his sources? What purpose does he have in mind in, in actually putting this information out? Now, as a result of what liberal scholars did with this over the years, a lot of people in the, in the various conservative churches became very disturbed and very concerned and as if their faith were being shaken because for the first time they were hearing statements that would say that no, we don't believe that Matthew just simply sat down and the Holy Spirit dictated every word and he wrote that. Or that Mark sat down or Luke sat down or John sat down. But rather, that under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, that Matthew and Mark and Luke and John sat down and they had available sources there was, there was things they had witnessed with their own eyes and, and heard. And then there were things that had been related to them by other eyewitnesses. And then there was other materials that were circulating within the church. And there were other written documents and all. And they sat down and actually put this together for a specific audience. And they had a particular point to get across. Now, if you think about this, the bottom line is truth. And in the final analysis, if you arrive at that, 
you haven't taken anything away, you've actually added to it because what you're going to wind up seeing that is in these four sources, you've got more than four sources. That you've got four separate editors who are pulling material from a plurality of sources. And if they can do that in perfect harmony and continuity and, and portray the same Jesus with the same personality and, and the same events or the same type of events, and yet they're pulling not only from their own experiences, but from the other sources and other eyewitnesses. And then this material is edited and put together by them and circulated in the church at a time when thousands are still living who were involved in this material. And that the early church is actually aware of these various individual parts that they put together that circulated among them. And the early church just simply receives that and respects it and endorses it and accepts it as authority, you really haven't taken anything away from it. You've made it a lot stronger so far as truth is concerned. In other words, the more people that can become involved so far as their testimony or their witness in a piece of information, the stronger and the more concrete that that piece of information actually becomes. Now, in, in using the tools of redaction criticism, source criticism, and form criticism, and studying the Gospels in this way, there's some other things that we can learn. It'll help us when we sit down and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to interpret certain things if we understand their purpose in writing in the first place. For example, if there are times where you're going to read where Matthew writes about a particular event and Jesus is given a teaching and Luke records the same thing, but there's different, some different words over here in Matthew than there is in Luke, and vice versa. Well, if you're operating as the fundamentalist Christian has over the years past, with the attitude that, hey, each have recorded exactly what Jesus said, and the Holy Spirit dictated what to say, you've got problems. And the end result, as a result of a misteaching on the way the Holy Spirit used these men, people thinking that they, was, they were doing something good, they actually done something negative to thinking individuals, and this is part of the reason that you have people that were, were went off to college as believers, especially the seminaries and all, and wound up becoming unbelievers. Because here what they had this concept of how the Holy Spirit inspired these people. And then when they read and they said, Hey, wait a minute, and, and when you that when you really put this side by side, what did Jesus actually say? Matthew's got him using this word, uh, and Matthew has him in this context, Luke has him in this context over there, which was it really? And so as a result of, of that, it looked like, well, there's contradictions here. This obviously just evolved, and there's a piecemeal effort that was put together over the years, and so at least there was enough doubt there to cause a lot of very sincere people to back off so far as their faith in Christianity is concerned. Now, to, to call somebody to back off you, you really don't have to dogmatically prove that something is wrong. Uh, you just have to pose doubt. It's like the thing with uh, Melinda in the stove. She wasn't positive that the stove was on, but she wasn't positive that it was off. And the more she thought about it, the more doubt there came in her mind. How many times have you had the experience of going out to the car? I don't know how many times Barbara and I have done this. And you feel perfectly comfortable. I know I've, I've checked the coffee pot and the iron and everything, and we go out there. And she'd say, are you sure that you checked the arm? Are you sure the coffee pot was unplugged? And I said, yes, I turned it off and I unplugged it. Are you sure? And I began to have doubt. 
And so I go back in, and most of the time, it's off, and I try, but by just saying that, you put it out in my mind. Well, what happens is a lot of the, the material that has been put out by the liberal scholar who has, and the uh, theologians who have attacked the Bible, that has destroyed a lot of people who honestly had belief, has not been material that caused them to wind up with no belief, but it was just enough to put doubt in their mind, so that took away from their commitment. You're just simply not going to be 100% committed and to give of your time and money and involvement unless you're sure of something. It's like uh, digging a well in your backyard. Uh, you'll take a chance for a few dollars uh, that oil may be down there. But when somebody tells you it's going to cost you everything you've got, then he better be willing to show to you that, hey, it's almost 100% that you're going to hit oil. Otherwise, you're not, you're not going to mess with it. Well, in the same way, a person may be 50% convinced that Christianity is true. That'll get a 50% commitment. That'll get him to the church building and have him sing a few songs and throw in a few dollars. But it's not going to cause him to have the kind of commitment where he literally loses his life and is willing to dedicate his entire life to serving God on the basis of the principles there. That, that kind of thing takes 100% convincing. So, I'm saying the type of things that we're looking at are the things that Christians need to know so that when you come in contact with various materials, you know where they're coming from and why they think the way they do, and that you also know how that you actually can handle the material itself. Now, let me give you an example of some of this. And by the way, this particular book here, you can see the title, The Synoptic Problem. Uh, this guy, I've read a number of books in this area, and this, at least to, to, to my, in my judgment, is the best from a standpoint of he is well-read in all these various harmonies and, and, and books of this nature through the years. He does a good job of uh, bringing it all together, and I think the very best. He's also a, a conservative scholar that's handling liberal material and doing, doing a very good job of it. Uh, turn to Matthew 15. Uh, let's see. Uh, turn to Matthew 15. Uh, well, let's see. I'll start with uh, Mark. And uh, uh, there's one problem is we brought the. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, we should have brought the other one. Okay. Well, one time we had this one. Uh, that's okay. That's okay. I tell you what, I'll just. Uh, you've got a regular, and uh, and Joe's got one over. Joe and Melinda. Uh, Mark, turn to Matthew 15, uh, 21 through 22, and Joe, uh, you and Melinda, turn to Mark 7, 24 and 25. Okay? And I want you to know, here is exactly the same event uh, recorded by Matthew and Mark. And we're going to see something about the emphasis of the two writers. Okay, read that, uh, uh, Mark, Matthew uh, 15, 21, 22. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Okay. Now, read it in Mark. I've got a fifth grade reading ability here. <laughs> <coughs> Let me read it. You've got a second grade. <laughs> Jesus left that place, and he went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit, came and fell at his feet. Okay, now, 
Notice the difference there, and you can see it better if you was looking at them both side by side. <clears throat> Notice in Matthew, he's got the woman saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Okay? In Mark, it doesn't use that term, son of David. Also, notice a little bit of commentary there. Uh, Matthew says it's a Canaanite woman from the region. Okay? Here, he just simply states that immediately a woman came in, and then he goes. All right, now, if you were to look at this, you can see how that Matthew has taken Mark. And he's, he's added a little bit of explanation here. Uh, he's identified a Canaanite woman. But then also, he has thrown in this statement, son of David, that was not in Mark's account. All right, now, turn over to this uh, uh, Matthew again for Mark. In Matthew 21, 9. Matthew for Mark or Mark for Matthew? <laughs> and then Mark for Joe. Luke 19, uh, 37b, that's halfway through 37, where it says the whole multitude, Luke 19, 37b, through 38. So it's 37b through verse 38. Huh? Now where am I, Matthew, again? <laughs> yeah, Matthew, Luke was in it. No. <laughs> yeah, leave those markers in. I got something else marked to show for later. Uh, now, uh, I don't know where we are. <laughs> Christy, you read Mark 11, 9, and 10. Okay? So what I've got is the exact same event recorded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I want you to note the difference between them. And what I'm doing here is noticing a distinction in Matthew as opposed to Mark and Luke. Okay, read uh, Matthew's account. Matthew 21 and... Verse 9. Okay. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted... Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Okay, now read Mark's account. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Okay, now I'll go ahead and I'll read Luke's because your turn the other one, okay? In Luke, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that had been seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. Obviously, the, look at the little bit of difference in the word, but notice again, Matthew says, Hosanna to the son of David. Mark just simply says, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then in Luke, it's just blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay? Matthew again adds his term, son of David. All right. Either way what, you go, it's not, a, it's not a direct quote in, in, in any right, of them because they're what, all different. Right. That what Matthew's point is, Matthew is writing to the Jew, okay? And he constantly refers to Jesus as the son of David. And you can take parallel passages, we just took a, a couple samples here, where they record exactly the same event. And Matthew will throw in there the son of David. He's wanting to emphasize that this is the son of David that they're looking forward to. Now, Luke and Mark are writing to a Gentile audience. It really, the, the fact that he was the son of David, in the sense the Jew looked for him, was no big thing to them. And so they didn't even bother to put it in there. In other words, whether it was not said, or whether they deleted, keep in mind that anytime you're, you're quoting, 
you're not giving everything. Can you imagine how big the New Testament would be? Or if, if you had, like every sermon that Jesus preached, you had the entire sermon. And remember the statement of John that many other miracles did Jesus do, but these are written that you might believe. And the same thing is true with the sermons. Like on the day of Pentecost, you don't have that entire sermon. You have a synopsis of that sermon as given by Luke. Well, obviously, five people could give a synopsis of the same sermon. There's going to be some material they choose that's exactly the same. Each is going to choose parts that the other one does not. And so sometimes it's hard to determine just exactly what was said, you know, on, on the point. But we can see something here. We can see that David is concerned with a Jewish audience and emphasizing that he was the son of David. Now, notice another characteristic. Let's see. Uh, dealing with uh, uh, Matthew. Let's see. Okay. We'll deal with Matthew again. Uh, in Luke, Matthew 13, 10 through 19, and verse 23. Okay. Uh, Mark, you turn there. And uh, Joe, Mark 4, 10 through 15, and then verse 20. And Christie, Luke 8, 9 through 12, and verse 15. 8, 9 through 12, and 15. Verse 15. Perfect. Now, just 15 or 9 through 12. 9 through 12, and then verse 15. Now, Christy, look at that discourse in Luke 8 through 9, and then uh, 8 through, or 9 through 12, and then verse 15. The word understand is in there one time, okay? The word understand is in there one time. You begin with verse 9 and come on down to verse 10. And, and then you'll get to the word understand. It's there one time. All right. In Mark's account, the word understand, looking after verse 12, you find that word understand. It's in there one time. Okay? Now, in Matthew's account, though, that, that uh, Mark has, in verse 13, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then in verse 14, you shall indeed hear, but never understand. Okay? And then coming on down to verse 15, perceive with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart. Then in verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, verse 23, as for what was sown in the good soil, that is, he who hears the word and understands it. All right? We've got exactly, and I want you to still hold on to the same passage because I'm going to point out something else. But notice in exactly the same passage here that uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark and Luke use the word, they've got Jesus uh, stating this word understand one time. Matthew has got it there five times. Okay. I just chose this as a sample. As you go through Matthew, this thing of understanding is a very, very big thing to Matthew, just like being the son of David. To Matthew, the big difference between the disciples that followed Jesus and the others had to do with understanding. In other words, see, they all had the scriptures, and, and they, they all studied the scriptures, and they were all looking for the Messiah. But the big difference between those that became disciples were those that understood the scriptures. And so Matthew will take the same discourse that uh, Mark and Luke does, and you'll run into this word understand a number of times where it won't be in the parallel accounts. 
Now let me notice something else. Listen to this in Matthew's account when we get right down to the very end of it. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, read verse 23, uh, Mark. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soul is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Okay. Now, Joe, read that uh, verse 20 in Mark. Now, notice what he said. In Matthew, it says, bears fruit, yields a hundredfold, sixty, and thirty. Now, notice when he reads it in Mark. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Thirty, sixty, or even a hundred times what was sown. All right, notice the difference. One says a hundred, sixty, and thirty. The other, thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. Obviously, that... It was no big deal to them the, what order that was in. The important thing was that he said it. Well, see, what you would point out to anybody, there is no difference in what he said. Obviously, it was not important to them. Now, here's something to, to keep in mind when, when you look at it. And we see this in Matthew. The Jew did not have the same attitude towards quoting that, that we have today. And part of the problem when people have looked at things in the Bible and compared it is we have tried to project under those people a criteria that we use today. The, when the Jew quoted scripture, he did not necessarily feel an obligation to quote it verbatim. He felt an obligation to hit the meaning. And so when Paul, for example, is using the Greek Septuagint uh, in writing his letters, if he comes to a place where the Greek Septuagint, he feels, is not quite accurate in translating from the Hebrew manuscripts, Paul will make the correction in the Greek Septuagint. If he is quoting from a place where he feels another word with the same meaning would be better for his audience, then he will use that other word. And they, they, there was no, they didn't even use quotation marks or, or anything of that nature. The, the, the only thing they were concerned with is getting the actual meaning across. And you can see there, obviously, which one is quoting that ex exactly? Well, if you were to compare Matthew and Mark, you would wind up coming to the conclusion that Mark gives you the more literal word-for-word -word rendering in, in comparison with Matthew in, in any time that you can look in, at Mark and Matthew and Luke. Number one, the, the words of Mark sometimes come across in a little more rough way. Matthew wants you to understand and so if he wants to, if he feels that changing a word will help you understand it, he'll do it. In fact, we're going to come to an example where what Jesus makes a statement that is stated in Aramaic and was very easy for them to understand. But when you translate that to the English language and other languages, it becomes difficult to understand. And so Matthew, he actually does something. He changes the word itself in order to make it a more easier thing to be understood. And we'll see that in a comparison between him and Luke later on. Now, notice in Luke's account, there's nothing there about a hundredfold, sixty or thirty, or thirty, sixty, and a hundred. But it says, bring forth fruit with patience. And so Luke has his documents before him. And again, as you read the parable, you get exactly the same meaning out of all three. Exactly the same meaning. But as you look at it, each of them have deleted certain things that the other have not. Each of them has emphasized certain things, like there is Matthew emphasizing he five times he comes forth with this word understand. And then when they get down to the end of it, 
all three of them ended in a different way. Obviously, what this again is saying is, we don't have three people that any one of which has the documents of the other and are just simply copying verbatim. We have individuals who are operating from a plurality of sources and who are very familiar with the material. And they're just simply interested in getting that material, the truth out. And what that shows is their confidence in the truth. In other words, if you've got something that uh, you're not sure about and, and you're trying to foster this on somebody else as the truth and you've got a plurality of people, there is a tendency for each one of you to want to say everything in exactly the same way and be very careful about it. But if you're involved in something that you know is true, and for example, if, if uh, Joe, you and I and Mark sat down with a lawyer about something that we've seen, and it's the truth, you know, we, we've all seen it. I don't care whether you talk first or whether Mark talks first. I don't care if he talks to all three of us at the same time or calls us in there one at a time because we're dealing with truth. Well, if he calls us in there one at a time or even as we talk about it, we're going to use different words. Uh, we're going to express ourselves in different ways. Uh, we're going to each leave out information that the other one would put. All of that is a mark of truth. But if we're trying to convince this person of something that is not true, we're going to be a little bit tense, a little bit nervous. We're going to get together out here and we're going to get our stories just right. And when we stand before him, that we're going to want to say everything exactly the same way. You're not going to feel that comfort. I'm saying that the very comfort that these writers felt with the material, that when, when uh, Luke sent his material out, and when Matthew sent his material out, the fact that it wasn't word for word like Mark, or that they had material that Mark didn't have, or that each of them had material that the other didn't have, that didn't bother them. They obviously have not made any effort whatsoever to say things in exactly the same way. Now, another interesting thing is, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each with their own redaction <coughs> on the material, have circulated this material when people are alive who were still involved in the events. The very fact that those people just received all four Gospels and accepted it as the authority in the church is evidence that they saw no problem with it whatsoever. That some of the problems that had been seen 20 centuries later, supposed apparent problems, those people didn't, didn't see at all. And see, that's something to keep in mind if you ever run into somebody that is, is from the, the liberal school and who is trying to talk about contradictions and things of this nature. By the way, this is what they're calling contradiction. Is that the early church, when the document was circulated and had thousands of people that had been firsthand involved in that material, they found no problem with it. And that, that as we now go back and study the literature of the first century, and we study the way that the people wrote, we don't have any problem because we find that the problem has come with people trying to foster certain things onto the first century writers from a criteria that we look at today that they simply didn't look at or, or respect at all. And yet when we look at this, the big question becomes from a standpoint of spirit and meaning, what is the difference between Matthew, Mark, and Luke here? None. There's just simply a difference on emphasis and what it shows. <coughs> When one says 100 fold, 160, 130, and the other one reverses it, and the other one ends it a little bit different, what it shows is that all three writers felt extremely comfortable with what they were doing, and they weren't the least bit hesitant about getting that out on the market and, and before the people, even there, though there were these differences within the material itself. Okay, now, another thing that will be to pop into your mind, or at least I hope so as we go through here, and you can do the same thing with the letters and all,
you, you, you begin to see that this literalist view of handling the Bible in such a way like so much hangs on every single word and all the arguments about some of the various translations because uh, of them using different words to express the same meaning because of different audiences that all of this flies in the face of the way these people use the material that wrote it initially in other words obviously the most important thing to them was to tell the truth and that you're dealing with spiritual principles and it just simply is not revealed like a legalistic document where they're going to try to nail somebody on every single solitary point. It's revealed in such a way as to get across these great spiritual principles. Okay, let's turn to a... Uh, okay. Here's another one. Let's go to same event, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we'll take uh, several here. Uh, Mark, take... Uh, Matthew 8, 16 and 17. Uh, Joe, Mark 1, 32 through 34. And then Luke 4, 40 and 41. Let's see, oh, you've got that. By the way, you can turn to the very back. I've got it. Okay. The only problem is you have a problem knowing exactly where the verse is in because they've got like right. a whole section. Sure. But you can't find the past. I'm dealing with some of the same problem here because every single verse... Now, let me, let me ask you something, not to sidetrack you and get off on a tangent here. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> uh, is there something in here that, that these people are talking about that really could look like a contradiction? Well, there are some apparent contradictions that if you didn't know other... that would seem to be a contradiction until you know other information. And that would hold down. And apparent contradictions are actually good, yeah, because right. they they show that there was no effort, that nobody was scared about putting out something, and there would be an apparent contradiction with something else. That they, and it also shows that one person didn't sit down and just copy. That that you honestly have four separate, distinct works here, and that becomes obvious. Right. Yeah. I think okay. we saw that last time. I thought that was real good wow. when Jesus taught one passage said that he sat down and taught them and right. another passage said that he looked up and right. taught the people obviously he would have had to been sitting, sitting down down. And look up at right them. she's recording <laughs> the event in mark and luke uh when they record the same event one says that jesus looked up and and, and the other one said that he sat down and talk and obviously that he would he would have been sitting down to to look up but again it's just a good example of how each recorded the same thing in a little bit different way but they complement one another yeah. all right now look at this again in uh matthew uh, uh mark read that matthew 8 16 and 17. when evening came many who went many who were demon possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with the word and healed all the sick this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up their infirmities and carried our diseases. Okay, now read the same one, Joe. 32 and 33. 32 through 34, Mark 1. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let them... Let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Okay, now read it, uh, Christy and Luke's. For Luke 4, 40 and 41. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had 
who had anyone sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuking them did not allow them to speak, for he knew that they that he was the Christ. Okay, now looking at Matthew, what's the difference, Mark? You see what Matthew added? He added the uh, about the prophecy of Isaiah. Okay. Here they record exactly the same event. But Mark and Luke say absolutely nothing about a fulfillment of prophecy. Matthew adds to that, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Alright, it's obvious. This story is now, by number one, have you noticed, of all the things that Jesus has said and done, it's interesting that that uh, that so many times Matthew, Mark, and Luke are revealing the same thing, the same story now. Alright, obviously then, this is a story that is circulating within, within the church in an oral way, and it, and it is become prominent. In other words, it's one that's been told over and over. Mark and Luke take it and put it down, okay? Matthew deals with it. What we see here is a redaction characteristic of Matthew. Matthew was concerned, remember, with Jesus, the son of David, okay? He's also concerned that you understand and that the big difference between the disciples and those that don't believe are, are, is this business of understanding. And so there's some interpretation from Matthew to get you to understand. And he'll record the little side discussions where Jesus helped his disciples to, to understand. All right, then another characteristic of Matthew is time and again when they deal with exactly the same event, there will be no mention in the others that this was a fulfillment of some prophet. But yet Matthew will put it in. Well, see, again, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. And it was extremely big to them that the Messiah be the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Okay, now notice another <coughs> example. In Matthew 12, 15 through 21, Mark. And then Mark 3, 7 through 12, Joe. And then Luke 6, 17 through 19, Christy. Okay, now each of you look at yours while he's reading his, and then he can do the same thing while each of you all. Okay, Matthew first. Uh, okay. Aware of this, Jesus went, withdrew from that place. Many followed him, and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant, whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldered wick he will not snuff out, till he leads justice to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. Okay, now read it in Mark. Uh, 7 through what? Uh, 12. <clears throat> Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, and... What, how do you pronounce that? Itamenia. Huh? Judea, Jerusalem, Itamenia. Itamenia. And the regions across the Jordan, and across Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so, though, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. 
but he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Okay. Now, go ahead and read in Luke. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him to, and be healed of their diseases, as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him and healed them all. All right, now notice, Mark and Luke actually give many more details that are not even in Matthew. Matthew starts off telling you about the healing, and we're dealing with the same event now, gives you very, very few details, but then he says, this is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, and he quotes that entire prophecy. And by the way, that is an, an accurate fulfillment now. All right, Mark and Luke give you much more detail into the miracle itself, but say absolutely nothing about the prophecy and its fulfillment. So there again, you can see an emphasis. Matthew's main emphasis is not the miracle. That he, I mean, he just wants to point out that he performed the miracle. But his main thing is to point out that this is a fulfillment of that particular prophecy. Whereas to Luke and Mark, the main thing was a description of the exact miracle itself. All right, now, another interesting thing about Luke. Luke was a physician. There are more healings in Luke than in any one of the four Gospels. And he seems obsessed with it in times. But there are more healings there. And you can just tell by the way he words it and all. Like, statements will be made by Luke that you can read a parallel passage and Luke will say, and power was with him to heal. And that statement won't even be in the other Gospels. And it just shows that Luke was fascinated with this ability of Jesus to heal. Well, there again, as one who was a physician and a doctor, you can see that the healing properties of Jesus, uh, the miraculous healing of sick people, would be extremely impressive to Luke, much more so than the average person. So there's more about the healing of Jesus in Luke than in any other in any of the other writings. Okay, so so you're saying Matthew was was primarily preaching to the Jews, right? He was writing a gospel. I mean, yeah, right. Going to Jews, <clears throat> trying to persuade them that Jesus was the Son of David. The fulfillment of the prophets. But they, they should have known. Prophecy. They should have known about that prophecy ahead of time. The Jews would would know about that as to where the Gentiles wouldn't. That right, well, see, to they the wouldn't, right. even, wouldn't even know anything about it. Well, the big thing is to the Jew, it really didn't matter how many miracles he performed. He would not be the Messiah unless he was fulfilling the prophecies. Right. See, the miracle to the Jew <clears throat> would just prove that he was a great prophet himself. But to be the Messiah, he would have to fulfill all the prophets. Whereas to the Gentile, the fulfillment of the prophet would not be the big thing. Because he was, like you said, that most of the Gentiles anyway. were not that familiar with the Jew. Now, they knew that the Jew looked for a Messiah, and many of the Gentiles had been proselyted by the Jews. But the typical <coughs> Gentile was not that familiar with the prophecies. And so the big thing to him was a miracle. And so they put the emphasis on the miracle. Matthew puts the emphasis on the fulfillment. And it's when you, you can see how that when you read all three of them is when you get the full picture. They give you many details that, that Matthew doesn't. And then on the other hand, Matthew sums up with something that's very important to us today, the fulfillment of the prophecy. Okay, now uh, come to another one, Matthew 13, 34 and 35, and then Mark 4, 33 and 34. Okay, now read first uh, Matthew 34 and 35, 13. Okay. 
Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Okay, now read in Mark. 33 and 34. Uh-huh. With many similar, similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. Okay, notice again, they're same event. Mark feels no obligation whatsoever. Matthew goes back and points out that this is a fulfillment of a, of a statement in their prophets. All right, we've just given some samples. You can multiply that of where when you look at a parallel situation that Mark or Luke will maybe give more details than Matthew. But then Matthew will add that it was a fulfillment. And that obviously then is the emphasis. Now, if you were to look through all the four Gospels, looking at nothing except healings, it would become obvious to you that that was an emphasis in Luke, over and above other things, that that was very, very important to Luke. And if you look for this thing of, of the Messiah being the, the lineage of David, remember how Matthew begins by going back to Abraham and then coming up through to David and bringing the generations down and then proceeds with the son of David concept, that this is an important thing to Matthew. It's not even important to the Gospels. It's important to Matthew because of the audience. So what you're seeing is that they've got this body of material here, but you're also seeing the individual personality of Matthew as he puts that material together. And you're seeing the individual personality of Luke as he puts it together. And you're seeing the individual personality of Mark. And of course you're going to see later on the individual personality of John. Now, let me do something a little bit different now. Before you leave that, let me ask you one other thing. Is there, does any of the other uh, Gospels say anything about the fulfilling of the prophecies at any time? Oh, yeah. yeah. But just not to the to the Not to extent. the extent. In other words, there are times where they will mention it, but it's, it's sort of a casual type thing, and there's no Mark. And that Luke has taken, and Mark and Matthew has taken, Luke has redacted in one way and Matthew in another. Luke has taken this material and did certain things to it. Matthew's taken it, but really it's coming from Mark. All right? Then you can show that there is some material that Matthew and Luke have in common that's not in Mark, where they were using other sources. But again, you can also show that Matthew gives it his individual treatment, and Luke will give it his treatment. And, and, but, but you can tell, you can, and, and then also, when you look at the material, you can generally see that Mark is more apt to give you the word-for-word -word rendering of what was actually said, all right? It's believed by... Just about, I'd say scholarship is almost unanimous today in believing that, that Mark was the first one that was written. And that you got these sayings exactly as they were uttered by Jesus, and, and he just simply put them down. Well, then Matthew got them and, and did a little bit of interpretation and, and did a few things to help you understand them, at least to the audience that they was going out to. Luke took it and also did some things to it. And, and then, of course, each of them had other sources. And even Mark. Uh, there is a document that we refer to as the Q document. And, it, and you can actually show that, that there is a document that, that we find throughout Mark that even when we come to some other sources outside the Gospel, we seem to find this same document. And, and see, even some of the material that you've heard of, like the Gospel of Thomas and, and, and other material written, written a little bit later on, well, although that was not a Gospel accepted by the Church and is not on the par with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
there is no question that the person who wrote that had access to some of the same documents that Matthew Mark, and you can see that in his quotations of the use of material, but there's no, no question that they had access to some of the same documents. All right, now, the next thing you want to know... This Q document, is it, is it something that we actually have, or is it something no. they're just referring to uh -huh. that seems to be in common? Right, it's a document that you can actually trace, uh, and see scholars debate on this, but, it, but you can actually see it in Mark, and, and you can see that there's times where were that uh, each of them, each of the three, are using a same document, and each of the three doing slightly different things to that document. And so for, for you to have a body of material that contains exactly the same information word for word, in other words, if you run into something that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is exactly word for word, obviously they're copied from the same document. Why don't they think they just that Matthew and Luke just copied from Mark, though? I mean, if they were using Mark's document to begin with, well, why don't they think I'm, that? I'm just curious. No, no, that I'm saying that most of the scholars would believe that Luke had access to Mark's document and that Matthew did too. But they, they didn't really sit down and just copy them. They took what they wanted out of Mark. Each of them did. Right. And see, you'll find, uh, you'll find Mark and Luke having something that is, is not in uh, Matthew. And you'll find Matthew and Luke having something. Uh, I should say Matthew and Mark having something that's not in Luke. But very, very few times will you have Matthew and Luke having something that's not in Mark. And, and one of the reasons that, uh, like, Matthew's document is so much longer now is because he'll take the same material and then he adds other material to it or his comment in trying to help you to, to understand it in some way. But you can lay them down and you can show how that Mark seems to, to, to form the basis. But then Mark himself has a document. This Q document is when you find something in Mark in Matthew, in Luke, that is literally word for word, then obviously they have copied, you know, from this same document. And, and uh, that you find this running throughout, you know, all, all three of them, all, all the way through. And so this is, uh, the word Q is just simply a, a term that's given to it, but we don't have the actual document. But it would be like you come into any other book, say that uh, myself and Mark and Joe published something, and, there, and, and yet, there are several times there where uh, we have this word, the same something that we have said word for word. Well, it's obvious we've used the same source, you know, if, if we've got that word, word for word. Well, it still doesn't seem obvious. It doesn't seem obvious to me that you're working from another source. So, I mean, if, if, if two of them have access to one of them's to one of the letters to begin with, it doesn't. It seems more obvious to me that they might have copied what he said rather than copied from another yeah, document. Yeah, but see, you can take. I'm, I'm missing something somewhere. You can take that same source, though. You have to have all three of them together, and you can take. In other words, this Q document is something that Matthew used and Luke used also, and I'm saying you can you can take another document and pursue it through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and and you and, and you can show in the way that they actually used it. You can't to do it. That Matthew and Luke used it that Mark didn't right. use it. Right. Okay. And you can and see the and then even with the way the language is used and the wording and the way the sentence structure is and all that you can put the documents together. But I'm saying to really see it, you have to sit down and look at it side by side and have the material actually pulled out. But you can see it. Okay. You know when you when you sit down and, and look look at it. But the there is no question that you know they're working from a plurality. Of course, Luke tells you in his introduction that he's working from a plurality. Of materials, you know, 
And then you can look at each one and tell where they put their emphasis. In other words, that, that scholarship would be an agreement that you're more apt to get the word-for-word -word quote directly from Mark than you would be from, say, Matthew. And then you're more apt to get the chronological setting from Luke than you would either one of the others. And we're going to turn to an example now where, where Matthew and Luke record a same thing, but you're going to see that the setting is completely different, even though they're talking about exactly the same thing. Okay, look at, uh, let's see, starting with Luke uh, 15 and verses 1 through 7. Luke 15, 1 through 7. And Matthew, uh, okay, I got, I forgot, I was looking at the wrong one. Matthew 18, 12 through 14. And then as you read that 12 through 14, though, Mark, look at the verses before that, all the way back to the, to the first, just on your own. So I want you to read Matthew 18, 12 through 14, but look back to see the context of who he's actually talking to. And then... Uh, in Luke, though, let's go ahead and read that. And this one, this one here is not in Mark. Let's look at uh, beginning with verse 1 through verse 7 and read the context. Okay, uh, read uh, Matthew first, verses 12 through 14. You waiting on me? Uh-huh. <laughs> what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I'll tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, our Father in Heaven is not willing that any of those little ones should be lost. Okay, now, looking at the context, who is he talking to? Going on back. It looks like the disciples. Oh, you're exactly right. Here we have that statement, and in the context, Matthew has him talking directly to the disciples here. Okay, now let's look at Luke and start with verse 1. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, Let me go ahead and read verse mm -hmm. 2. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying, and to, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just, just persons who need no repentance. Okay, now, notice that after that in Luke, we've got the prodigal son that's going to come out, right? Where he goes ahead and talks to the prodigal son. All right, now, notice the... Two completely different contexts. What's, the, what's in, the Matthew text there? What, all right, in Matthew, this same statement <coughs> is going to the disciples. In Luke, you have the Pharisees and the tax collectors, and he's coming forth with this statement. All right, now. Is that why this book, this narrow Bible, doesn't put them together? At that particular point, it, yeah, it may, he may not give it. What's the, the, what is right. the ver chapter and verse in Matthew? All right. Now, if. Scholarship, if you were to read the various commentaries and all, and especially all the late ones and all, they would be in agreement that the real context is in Luke. 
Because, see, when he's taught the, the thing of going after the lost and then following up with the prodigal son and all, the natural context is where he's being challenged because he associated so much with the sinners and all. Whereas in Matthew, he just simply gives the statement and he's actually talking to the disciples. Well, here we see a characteristic. Now, there could be others picked, and we're just using this one. Luke has a tendency to more follow the actual context that the material was given in. He, we keep in mind Luke is an educated man and he's a Gentile. And he's writing to a Gentile and wanting to know the certainty about these things. All right, Matthew grabs his material in topical order. And so this teach, the teaching of Jesus in Matthew comes in four great discourses throughout Matthew. For example, the first is Matthew 5-7, through seven, the Sermon on the Mount. Well, what you read in Matthew 5-7 through seven will be read through a plurality of verses in Luke. All right, remember the, the judgment on the destruction <coughs> of Jerusalem. Matthew puts it all together in 23, 24, 25, 26, not Luke. Luke moves it. He's got one chapter up there in 21 that is parallel to 24. But he moves his material all the way through. In other words, you can show that, that Luke records these statements in the order and the context that Jesus actually gave them. Matthew just pulls it all together. And so you've got a different style of writing. In the same way on something like this, that Luke, <coughs> looking at the whole context, he gives you the context that it was actually uttered in. Matthew is pulling it along with a lump of other teaching and giving it directly to the disciples. And again, you can see how that, that when you're uh, teaching this, how that you're knowing this would help you teach others. In other words, if you're studying Matthew and you get to this particular point, well, you could say to appreciate what Matthew is recording here, let's go over and read it in its context. Then you flip over to Luke and read the context. All right, if you're studying Luke, you might say, now here is the context and all, but let's also flip over and notice a few things that Matthew adds to it and his explanation to make sure. See, Matthew always wanted to make sure you understood it. And so Matthew, if what, if what is involved involves a fulfillment of prophecy or if there's some word that he can change to make you better understand it, Matthew's going to do it. And so either way, you can actually help the, the person that you're working with understand the material better. And you can see how that if you, if you know this in advance, the, the end result that each writer was trying to get, and you know about his audience, then whichever one that you have to be teaching from in a class or in a study such as this, whether you're using Matthew, Mark, or Luke, it really doesn't matter, that you can bring in the other in such a way as to really enrich it. And then in those areas where there's a difference and somebody says, hey, there's a different word here, there's a different context here, you know how to explain it. All right, what has happened in the past is that people that were not studied in this They've either just ignored it, or they've had problems. And, and I can remember that in the early years when I read the, through the Gospels and on a regular basis that, that I had problems. When I would see something in one setting here and another setting there, and I saw a word used here and a different word here, it just, it gave me problems. It wasn't nothing that, that bothered me that much. I, I had the attitude that, and here again is the advantage of having a faith that's based on evidence. My faith was based on the evidence for the resurrection of Christ and the evidence for the inspiration of the Bible. And so anytime I came to something that gave my mind problems, I just always had the attitude, well, there is an explanation. I maybe don't fully understand this, but I believe there's an explanation for it. But if my faith had not been founded on evidence, 
And it was just a matter of, well, the Bible is the word of God. Believe it or not, the Bible said it, you know. Well, then when I came to those points, I would have real problems. So I'm saying, I can understand these people that have been brought up in such a way where the Bible has not been studied from a standpoint of examining the evidence for it. And then they get in a more sophisticated setting where some of these things are pointed out. And, and, and they, here they've had this teaching in their mind that the Holy Spirit dictated every word and all. And so they begin to have problems uh, in those areas. I can, I can relate to those problems. Well, you can see that if you know this and have studied it, that not only does this not pose a problem, but you can actually enrich the whole study. And it's no big deal to you that Matthew, in order to try and get somebody to understand something, has, has used a different word or added a comment. Or, or that Matthew, when his setting is different than Luke, you can point out, well, Matthew is giving you the material in a topical order. And he's not concerned about the chronological sequence or the exact setting. That's not even his purpose. He just wants to give you a body of information of the teaching of Jesus. He wants to give you some teaching here. He wants to give you some prophecy over here. He wants to give you some parables over, over here. And he wants to give you the, the destruction of Jerusalem right here. And that just tends to be the way he writes. That's the style that he has purposely chose. And Luke, and you can see how that, that we need to be thankful for Matthew's individuality and his style of writing. And we need to be thankful for Luke, for his individuality and his style of writing. And we need to be thankful for Mark. Mark was not the gifted writer that Luke was. He wasn't as gifted as Matthew. Mark has a vocabulary that is the, the smallest, the weakest of all four writers. But I'm thankful for Mark because he just grabs these teachings and miracles and sayings in the way that they were initially said. He doesn't worry about smoothness at all, and he just puts it down there. And so when I want to know what exactly did Jesus say or anything like that, I know I'm more apt to get it right with Mark. And keep in mind, you, you say, well, Mark, he's not even one of the apostles and all, but where is Mark getting it? From Peter. And you can go through the rest of the New Testament. And, and when Peter uh, is let out of jail in Acts 12, where does he go? To Mark's mother's house. Peter refers to Mark as his child in the faith. In the early church in the first century, what we call Mark's gospel in the, was referred to as the gospel of Peter according to Mark, or the gospel is preached by Peter and recorded to Mark, by Mark. Well, Peter is not the well-educated individual that the Apostle Paul was, and so that means that when Peter preaches, you're more apt to get a direct word-for-word -word thing of what was actually said, straight to the point, go for the juggler uh, with this person, then with the Apostle Paul, who's well-educated, has this tremendous vocabulary, is fluent in several languages, and wants to make sure that you understand the material. And so knowing these about your individual sources actually helps you to come to a much better understanding than you could otherwise. And, and when you run into people that have had some of these problems presented to them, will help you handle it and show them the very thing that they're thinking is a problem is something that ought to make all of it a whole lot more rich. Okay, now, let's see, that was, uh, let me give you one other event. Let's see, let me have that, uh, we'll cover just one more event for tonight. Turn uh, to Matthew 10. In verse 30, the end of the discourse, Matthew 10 and 37 through 39. Okay, and uh, then I'll have uh, Luke 14, 26. 
and 27. Just enough to uh, let you see the context of the same. Now, we're dealing with the same context. Mark, read that in Matthew, beginning with verse uh, 37 and then 38. 37 38. Okay. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Okay, so the context is one of discipleship and taking up the cross. And of course, there's more there that we're telling you that we're dealing with the same context. That's enough. So he says, anyone who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Okay, now here's the account in Luke. You want to hold your place there. And flip over to Luke. Flip over to Luke uh, 14 and verse 26. Luke 14, verse 26. And I'm reading 26 and 27. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life, he cannot be my disciples. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Well, then the question becomes, what did he say? Did he say that you cannot be my disciple if you love mother, father, brother, sister more than me? Or did he say you cannot be my disciple unless you hate your mother, father, brother, and sister, and even your own life? All right? Now, again, <coughs> the, the scholarship would believe that Luke is giving you exactly what was said. Uh, that that as, a, as a faithful historian, he's giving you exactly what was said. Now, the word hate is used in the Aramaic language to mean esteem less. It does not mean hate in the way we think it or in other languages in the way it's used. Uh, remember in the Old Testament that you read that uh, Jacob hated Lee and loved Rachel. He didn't hate Lee. He had relationships with her. He had children by her. He was concerned about her and everything like that. He had no problem with Lee. But he liked Rachel better. And so it's used in the sense he esteemed her less than Rachel. So he, he, he liked both of them. But Rachel was up here and Lee was down there. And that, How did that happen then? All right, no, no, that's what we're no, getting no. to. I'm saying that, that the word hate in the Aramaic language that Jesus spoke meant to esteem less. They, the ones that translated this right here should have known that. No, 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 they translated it right. They did. Yeah, Luke wrote that, and Matthew wrote that. I'm saying that Matthew wrote, if you love mother, father, son, and daughter, more than me, you're not worthy of me. And Luke wrote, hate, that they're each, each of them is translated right. See, what I'm saying is that Jesus was Aramaic. Right. And in using that term, hate, like that, he was using it in a correct Aramaic way, and they understood that to esteem less. They never understood it to despise or, or anything of that nature. It just simply wasn't thought of in that way. All right, now so Matthew, remember what have we said? Matthew wants, Matthew's concerned about understanding. And so this has gone out, I'm saying, the way that it was initially in the documents is what he actually said was, hey, all right, Matthew now sits back and looks at this, and he sees the possibility of this being misunderstood by others. In fact, there may have already been some statements about this among the disciples, and, and this is in Matthew's mind. So what Matthew does, he just simply words it in the way that would pose no problem. That would, and, and he conveys the meaning. So when he says, except you love me more than mother, father, son, or daughter, he really is saying exactly what Jesus said. 
But Luke is giving you verbatim what Jesus said. But you would have to know the Aramaic use of the word. Matthew wants to make sure you understand it. Now, what we have done in the English language is that we have put the two together and we've said, well, obviously, hate doesn't mean hate. It doesn't even make sense. It means to love less as a result of, of having both. But again, I'm saying you've got a situation where when Matthew records what Jesus says, he doesn't give you word for word. He gives you what Jesus meant in the, in the statement there. And the other way, you get the word. Now, how many times, in fact, it's interesting in this statement in Luke to show you the importance of, of understanding even the way that Aramaic word was used. When unbelievers write statements against the Bible, trying to show how ridiculous it is and expose it and everything like that, one of the passages they use is this thing in Luke. They said, look at this crazy man. He says, you can't even come to me except you hate your mother, father, son, or daughter. Well, now, if, you've not, if you not, haven't been a student of the Bible, and all you know about Jesus is what you're hearing, you know, here's, here's Jimmy Swagger, and there's Jim and Tammy, and there's some other huckster over here, and you've got all the denominations all divided up, and, 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 and you know, you, that, that's your concept of Christianity. And you're trying to figure this out. And yet, on the other hand, there's sort of an emotional pull towards some positive things you've heard about Jesus. Well, then somebody shows you this, and you think, well, that sounds ridiculous. You know, that doesn't, even, that doesn't even make sense. Well, you can see, and this is in the atheist literature, you can see then what you can do for the cause of Christ if you're able to stand up and say, hey, that was an Arabic word that didn't mean the same thing as, as we mean when we say hate. It simply means to esteem less. And Matthew, who's characteristic, when he covered the, the speeches of Jesus, was to actually interpret and make it sure that his audience could understand, records it and makes this. And Matthew was an eyewitness, and yet he changes it and makes and, and finds no problem with that whatsoever. Another interesting thing is that when, when the four Gospels all come together in the early church, they didn't find any problem whatsoever in it. The reason, they knew what Matthew was doing, and they knew what Luke was doing. And so they just simply had no problem there whatsoever. All right. There are a number of examples like this where infidels and atheists in their writing have really taken some shots at the Bible that can be easily handled by somebody who has studied in the customs or the language or the idioms or the, or, or the vernacular of that day, but to somebody who's not studied in it, that comes across as just a real strong statement and you wonder, why in the world is, is that in there? It just doesn't sound right to you know, be worded in that way. When you get to that part where it says, um, I can't find that, uh, even hate your own, what's that? Father, mothers, brothers, and even even his own life. I'm reading, that's right. different. Uh, to hate his own life, you've got to realize right there that there's something wrong. Right. In other words, about the word hate, because right, because it says everything that, else he tells you is to take care of your own. Sure. You know. And he even so says why would you hate it? Love your neighbor as yourself. Right. So there's the assumption that you love yourself. So there's something. It's obvious. Right. Tickoff says something's wrong. Sure. But what I'm getting at, you say in, in Aramaic, what the word, the word means what? to esteem less. Okay, but the word was translated. It's literally hate. hate. It's an accurate rendering. It's an, a, it's an accurate rendering. So, so is that hate, word hate in Arabic, is it an idiom? Is it, is it, it just simply means to esteem less. In other words, 
like so how uh, did it, uh, none of us would say that right, like, like oh when you read that, that John says if you hate your brother that you cannot be his disciple and all and see none of us would want to state that we hate our brother we'd all say we don't hate him but if you understand what John is saying even there that the word hatred without exception every time you find it in the Bible means to esteem less okay now, the word that would carry the same meaning that we think of with despise would be abomination. Like you'll read that such and such is an abomination to the Lord. Uh, and then he goes ahead and names these, these, these various things. But the word hatred, as a general rule, you just simply think of it, it means to esteem less. It's sort of like the word love itself, where it says love your enemies. That it, it doesn't mean love in the th sense we think of it in our vernacular. The word agape means to have an attitude towards the other person where you desire what is best for him. Well, you can have that towards your enemy. You can want him to repent. Somebody can be your enemy and you're not even like him, and yet you don't want him to see him starve to death. And you might even think, well, if I help him out, I might, might change him, you know. And, and so that you can have that, but then if you understand that in a way that, uh, that we use the word love, and it says love your enemy, you're going to say, well, that's impossible. How in the world can I love my enemy like I do my wife and like I do my children and all? And, and so you wind up thinking, well, well I'm, like one lady said to me, she said that it would be impossible for me to be a Christian because she said there, there are some people that I simply cannot love. And, and this was a woman that had been in Belgium in World War II. This was some years back that I'd run into her. She was in Belgium in World War II when the Germans went through it. And she had her sister raped. She had members of the family that were hurt by the Germans. She said, I can never love a German. You know, well, that's still a little bit hard. But then at the time, I'm young. I, I don't know the difference in the meaning of the words. I couldn't handle that. And I put myself in her position. And I thought, well, I'd have problems with that too. But see, she can in the agape sense. She can desire the very best for them. She can desire that they actually repent and change and all like that. And she don't have to have a feeling for them. And so the Bible doesn't command you to have good feelings towards everybody. It does command you to desire what is best, you know, for the other person. And so whoever it is out here that's offended you or wronged you or stole from you or whatever it is, you can desire what is spiritually best for that person even though you don't have good feelings. But I'm saying there again you're getting into something where knowing the meaning of the words becomes a, a big help. All right, now, one other thing, we'll end it for tonight. In the Gospels, they do something that, uh, uh, there are statements by Jesus like, uh, pluck out your eyes and uh, cut off your hand and things like this. That, and then there are also other types of statements that a knowledge of the language and the way they use materials will help us in. All right, a proverb as used by the, the, the Hebrew people was something, it was, it was, was something that was generally true even though there were exceptions. And what they would do, they would take a general truth based on observation, but they would state it as a universal axiom. Now the problem is that sometimes we come along and read that universal axiom as if it, as if it were a universal axiom. For example, honor the Lord with all your substance, with the first fruits of all your produce. 
Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. So he says, honor the Lord, contribute to him, and you're going to prosper. You know, and your, your vats are going to be bursting. As a general rule, you can show that people that are conscientious and lay by in store and who give to God and all like that, that that is going to, that you are. There's going to be a, uh, you've got a certain characteristic and a certain morality that's practiced, and they're going to prosper. But there are exceptions. There are people who have honored God and have had very bad things happen to them and, and have not always been prosperous. Okay, here's another one. Misfortune pursues sinners, but prosperity rewards the righteous. As a general rule, you can honestly show that misfortune pursues sinners and that the righteous tend to be prosperous. Now, you can show that in our society as a general rule, but there's exceptions to it. Sometimes misfortune happens to the righteous, and sometimes misfortune does not happen here on this earth to sinners. But as a general rule, you can say, well, when the writer stated that, he never understood it to be taken as a universal axiom. It was an absurd general truth. But in a proverb, you take an absurd general truth and state it as a universal axiom. Well, then somebody comes along today and they say, hey, I know this person that's righteous and such and such happened to him. I know this person that's a sinner and such and such has happened to him. There's no question. But as a general rule, you can honestly say that people who respect laws, who are decent, who are righteous, who want to do right, they tend to honestly be more prosperous and more successful in their relations with other people and in life than people that are the adverse, as a general rule. Now, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. This has been taught as, as such a universal axiom that we've had situations within Christianity where decent parents who honestly did as good as they knew how in bringing up a child and maybe there was one of the child that simply went astray. And then the parent is made to go on a guilt trip like, hey, you just weren't what you should be, or this child would not have gone astray. I've even been in situations where uh, they believe that a man couldn't even be an elder in the church because he had a, a kid out here on his own 30-something years of age that was, that was not a Christian, even though he may have had four or five other kids that, that were Christian. Well, again, that's not intended as a universal axiom. A proverb is taking a general observed truth and stating it as a universal axiom in order to emphasize the point. In other words, the whole point is emphasis. As a general truth, when you train a child up in a right way, he's going to go in that way. But there are definitely exceptions to the rule. In, in the story of the prodigal son, the father in that parable was Jesus. And yet the prodigal son, in and of his own volition, makes the statement that I want to go out here and squander and, and live with harlots and everything like that. And he went out and lived that way. Adam and Eve had, had two sons that are brought to our attention right away, Cain and Abel. They got the same parents, the same relationship with God, the same belief. And yet Abel is a man of faith and Cain's a reprobate. And then after he kills Abel, Seth is born, and Seth is like Abel, and so God can use him to work through. Well, you can show this example going through the Bible, that you can show godly people who actually every now and then have an unrighteous son, and vice versa. But, as a general rule, righteous people tend to rear righteous children. As a general rule, unrighteous people tend to rear unrighteous children, but there's exceptions. 
And Ezekiel 18 deals with that. That there are times when a child is brought up in an unrighteous background and he takes a look at that and he says, this is crazy, this is silly, I don't want any of that. And he goes the opposite direction. All right, again, as a result of not knowing that, uh, like for example, he who is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much. He who is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. Again, this is stated as a general observed truth. Those that take the sword will perish by the sword. A general observed truth. That when in the Jewish method of writing and speaking, and all the Proverbs are based on, based on this, in order to emphasize a general truth, they would state it as a universal axiom, knowing all the time that it was not. In other words, they, they but then we come along 2,000 years later with a concept of inspiration that maybe is not accurate and taking something and not realizing that this was common, this was a common characteristic of their writing, that when they wanted to emphasize as something that was an observed general truth, they would just simply state it as a universal axiom for emphasis. We come along and read it as a universal axiom and then we sometimes send ourselves on guilt trips or maybe unjustly condemn somebody else or get disturbed because this righteous person over here has a hard time and this pervert over here, everything seems to be going good for him. When in reality, they're, they're, although they're stated as universal axioms, they're just simply dealing with an observed general truth and they're stated that way for emphasis. And if you were to go back and read the literature of that people, separate from the Bible, you would find that this was just simply a characteristic of their writing, to take an observed general truth and state it for emphasis as a universal axiom, knowing all the time that it, that it really was not. Okay, those are just a, a few examples of things that I think that you can see as you read through in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or John, or, or, or some of these same principles will go to the other books. It's just we've been zeroing in on, on Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The, the old attitude of, of just open it up and take, turn any place you want to and say, well, it, it says what it means, and it means what it says, or just simply looking at a passage and without doing any further reading, thinking that you can just zero in and you can be confident of your understanding, that just simply is not so. That understanding is something that grows as a result of a lot of study over a lot, over a lot of years. And, and I think that's why that uh, James makes the statement, let not many of you become teachers, you take on yourself the heavier judgment. People that are so quick to push people into it and, and say, well, anybody can do it, and, and, and you just get up there and quote exactly what it says, they're really not that well studied, because I think the more you study, the more complicated you find that, that the information really is, but then for people that are willing to do it, the reward is a much greater understanding, and then the ability, when you get out there and start teaching for God, that you don't make mistakes where you give God credit for saying things that he's really not saying. And, and, and one of the problems that Christianity is having in our world today, that a lot of people are, are teaching at a time when they should be studying and then waiting a few years to teach. And the end result is that God and the Bible are given credit a lot of times for things that just simply are, are not said. Or that they're being put in a situation where God's being forced to explain something where there's no problem with God and the Holy Spirit. The problem is with the misunderstanding or the way that somebody else is trying to use that material.